It's great to be with you this morning, and um, today we're talking uh, about satisfaction and contentment, sort of drawing from Jesus' words here in our passage about um, this whole water that doesn't, uh, <clears throat> that quenches your thirst and that never ends. The woman interacting with Jesus here is being quite literal, saying, I'd like that kind of water so I don't have to keep walking back to this well, and she's got her reasons for believing that, but certainly as you read the story, you see that Jesus sort of has a, a message and a meaning and, and a, de- a deeper knowledge about who he is that he's revealing to this woman, evident by the fact that at the end of the passage, he says, I am he, referring to himself as the Messiah. So uh, we have this same interaction with Jesus as well, especially as readers of the Gospel of John, where we're trying to find out who this person is, Jesus, and what he's come to do, what he offers, what it's like to, to follow him and to know him. And um, one of the things that we'll find today is that he provides a kind of satisfaction, contentment and fulfillment that cannot be found elsewhere. Or certainly that, that's like the argument that I'd like to make. And I say argument because today's sermon is a little bit different in our interpretive tool that we're using to, um, to talk through the passage. So normally when we're preaching through a Bible passage, it's like, here's the passage, let's study it. And the main points from the sermon are like a very direct interpretive uh, step into the sermon. Uh, You might have observed in the Christian preachy world that there are different kinds of preaching where sometimes it's like a topic and the Bible passages are like thrown in to support a topic. Um, I'm not doing that, but today is also not our traditional way of um, interpreting scripture. I'd like to do something a little bit in the middle um, that I'm having a hard time describing clearly that is basically like, let's look at Jesus's interaction with this woman and then talk about how how we can bring it to bear on our human need for satisfaction, contentment, and our struggles with meaning in our lives. This is important to talk about, of course, because if we're looking for a source of satisfaction in our life, um, it answers one of the main, like, seeking questions that people have, even that you might have this, you know, hanging out here this morning, about um, is Christianity worth pursuing? Like, is life with Jesus something that I should have? And um, if, you, if you've been, spent a lot of time around people who are not Christians, you might notice that their questions or complaints about Christianity or comments about it fall into two categories. Some of the questions uh, ask the question, is it true? Like, is the resurrection of Jesus true? Is the Bible trustworthy? Those are questions that a lot of Christian books have been written about. But what I've noticed, especially as time change and as we all sort of get a little bit older and uh, our culture becomes more and more post-Christian, the, the greatest questions, the greatest category of comments that you'll hear in regards to people talking about Jesus is not, is it true, but why should I care? And there was a Christianized America that treated church differently than like a Buddhist temple or a, a, a Muslim mosque, but the more post-Christian our culture gets, they're all sort of equally disregarded in our secular culture. And people will think of Scientology in the same way that they think of Christianity, in the same way that they think of some other religion that they don't even Uh, have a knowledge of. So when it comes to discussions on why should we, should people, should our culture care about whether Christianity is even true at all, we have to get into this area of what is offered for those who are encountering Jesus, which is what our sermon series is about. What is brought into the lives of people who have something missing if you were to give Jesus a chance or if you were to take some time in your life to investigate, is this thing even true? And most of us, though, 
if once in our path to become Christians, we had to first answer this, why should I care? Then we had to go into the realm of is it true? And then we found the barriers of belief gone and we were able to look at the real Jesus and say, I want to be a Christian. That's a normal path. So one of the amazing things that is offered to us when we encounter Jesus, the real Jesus, the, 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 the risen Jesus today, is a very special kind of contentment and satisfaction that is brought to us. And that's something that Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of John when he says, we all know what it's like to be thirsty. We all know what it's like then on a deeper spiritual level to have spiritual thirst. Uh, he uses other metaphors, uh, like when he says, I'm the bread of life. He's saying, we all know what it's like to have like, the pain in our insides at being hungry. And he's saying, I am the bread that satisfies. And he uses other I am statements where he uses that same Old Testament reference to the name of God, uh, the I am. And, and in the Greek, then not in the Hebrew, it says, ego eimi. And every time you see that throughout the Gospel of John, he's saying, you know from your Old Testament, you know from life, your longings, your needs, your hopes, all of them are found in the ego eimi, in the I am. I am he. And I think this is the first time that he utters those words in the Gospel of John. So today we're going to see Jesus as the source of satisfaction because it's something powerfully offered to us when we encounter Jesus, but also because if we have friends that are seeking things in life, we should know that this is like a powerful uh, answer to the, the longings that people have in the world that can lead them to Christ. Have you noticed if you are uh, on a diet and you went for the low-carb option diet that... Um, when you're detoxing from carbs, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm getting healthy. We're eating right. Salads and meat or keto. Keto is like the diet where it's a lot of fat and like very low carb. Every time I eat some sort of low carb meal, I can fill myself with whatever wonderful low carb options there are. And still at the end of that meal, there's a longing in my stomach that says there was something missing from this meal, right? You need a cracker. You need carbs. You need a Coke, whatever it is. And that, I think I did keto for like six months. My wife and I did it together. She was like, I'm doing it. I'm getting healthy. And you have to too because I'm not doing this alone. And uh, so we did it. I looked like I had some sort of severe illness. <laughs> I lost all my muscle. I lost very little fat, just all the muscle. And I was just walking around like this. And people kept asking me, are you okay? Is everything okay? So that's keto, but the whole time I was on that keto diet, I was like, something is missing. And we have that deeper spiritual longing where even if things are going well, people like us, people love us, um, the most successful of us, the most secure and wealthy of us still have that sort of, I guess I address, Jesus is like carbs in that sense. He did say he's the bread of life, so this makes sense. But like, there's a longing that even if things are good, where we go, there's just something missing, and that satisfaction is um, offered to us in Jesus. So we're going to talk about the well, our need for satisfaction in verses 3 through 8. We're going to talk about the water that we try and draw up from that well, which is in a sense a desire for true lasting water that Jesus talks about. We're going to talk about this woman's worship that she talks about the temple and her worship as a Samaritan, which is our striving to God for that satisfaction. And then we'll close with the witness her witness, which is, we find the satisfaction in Jesus when he says, I am he. 
So the well and our need for satisfaction. Let's look back to our passage in verses 3 through 8. So Jesus left Judea, went back to Galilee. And that's important for us to know the geography of the New Testament because there were two paths to get to this place, to Galilee, where Jesus went often. You could go around it, and if you were a rabbi and an observant Jew, and you knew you had problems with the Samaritans, for reasons I'll get to in a second, then you would go around Samaria. The most direct path, though, was through Samaria, and it's evident as we read this story that Jesus, the disciples are gone, they're in town, it's just Jesus, and he arrives at this well, and then there's this woman, and as you see the story unfold, you realize that there is a divine appointment happening here. Jesus chose to go the unpopular path. The, the countercultural path, in the sense that this woman is surprised that Jesus would talk to him because it's not normal for, uh, for, for a man to be just talking to any kind of young woman. Um, he's, he's a distinguished person as he's got followers and people are referring to him as rabbi. And then he's talking to, he's a Jew who knows his Bible, and yet he's talking to a Samaritan, a disregarded group. So he's, he's choosing a different path, a countercultural path, and yet there's a divine appointment clearly happening here. Verse 4, so he went through Samaria, he came to a town called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. In the Old Testament, like the first part of the Old Testament, wells are significant. They're, all, they're obviously significant because they're places where there's water in a desert climate, but they're also places where people can meet. They're places that um, remind us of significant events, even in the life of the, the Pentateuch, the first books of the Bible. And, um, and so this is, a well is a normal place where you would meet someone and potentially have a significant interaction. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw the water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? In verse 8, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So what draws people in the Old Testament and in this interaction together is a well, like the need for water, the feeling of being thirsty, the feeling that in a desert climate that you can't survive if you don't get some sort of water in you. And so it draws us to this particular place. And in that same way, we have in the interaction with Jesus, a, di a, a deeper spiritual thirst that also draws us to this place. And you can imagine uh, because the woman is there at noon, we find out later she has many men, and so she's almost certainly a social outcast. You know, when it gets hot, it's noontime is the hot time, and everyone else would have gotten their water in the morning. She's obviously uh, disregarded by some of the popular people in that town, and so she's going out at the difficult time to go because she's trying to go alone, almost certainly because she's an outcast because of what she's done in her situation with men. But in the end, what I'm trying to tee up here is that... Um, what draws all of us together is our common need for satisfaction, our common thirst. When you're young, I think it's common for you to look at experiences in your life um, and assume that there will be uh, experiences that quench your thirst. You might think when you're younger, sure, I'm unhappy now, but I've got all these years ahead of me. And then one day I will feel like I've got the career and the looks and the personality, and, and mental health, and whatever. You, you assume when you're young that the stars will align, maybe in a person, maybe in a career, maybe in a, a place, and you think, I will one day have like living water where I won't be thirsty again. But I think as you get older, 
um, you find out. Sometimes you have realizations as you get older that you're, you realize you're not happy. You're not as happy as you thought. You're not as happy when you're younger as you had, had hoped. And that's a very disorienting feeling to say, uh, it, and it can make you very bitter. It can make you angry at people. It can make you angry at God. It can make you angry at yourself. But a lot of us have that experience. You get to a certain age, and maybe it's like a 30-something thing. or a four, Maybe it's different for every kind of person. Um, I know for me, you know, it sort of happened in my mid-30s where I go like, oh, I... I thought of myself as like a really healthy Christian who has lots of resilient joy, and yet for whole seasons, I kind of go, I'm kind of grumpy, hard to deal with, complainy, always looking for people to, uh, to validate my complaints about this and that in the world. I think some of us realize at different seasons of life that things happen to us that we don't think we deserve or that, that God should not have allowed to happen in our lives, and it makes us realize that things are not as they should be. We thought that ordinary life when we were younger would quench our thirst for satisfaction, and oftentimes it doesn't happen. Horace is a philosopher from before Jesus' time. He died in 8 BC, and he asks the question, how does it happen that no one lives content? How is it that it's so normal for just all of us to lack that kind of contentment, and I think that is true certainly for us. So we need to go to the well. We all have this internal need to go to a place where we can find satisfaction. So we have to look down in the well, see if there's water there for us. And if we have a desire for satisfaction, we'll see the story unfold, verses 9 through 15 to put the bucket down, and to seek some water. One cultural commentator said, if God really wants to play a rotten practical joke on us, he will grant our deepest wish, and then he giggles merrily as, as we eventually realize that we want to kill ourselves. Did I stumble over that too much? The, the commentator was saying, um, one of the things that God could do that would just be wicked and cruel is that all the ways that we think we're going to find satisfaction in life, he would give you everything you ever wished for. And then he would, in, in his detest for you, looking for other things b- besides him, would say, you could have everything you want, and you would have all the fame, all the notoriety, all the security, and you would still have that inner hunger for some meaning. That would be a mean trick that God might play. And we would, he would giggle merrily as we eventually realize that we want to kill ourselves. And, and it's easy to look for, at, at public figures because... Sometimes they're wealthy. They're also kind of disconnected from you, so you don't really know them. They're successful where you might have been unsuccessful, and so it's easy for us to be kind of like bitter. How could you be so rich and still be unhappy? But um, we know from social media and, and normal media that there's like a host of very powerful, very successful, very wealthy and secure people who, when you look at their lives, seem somewhat unsatisfied and discontent. So what we realize is that we're looking for some sort of lasting water, but many of us are clearly not finding it. Um, if you fast forward to it, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then he says, don't work hard for bread that won't last. He's signifying something very similar, which is to say, you could have something that you think is going to fill you, that you think is going to satisfy you, but it won't, um, if it doesn't last, it, it, if, it, if it remains sort of... Um, you know, you're trying to eat it, but you're still hungry, or you think you have it and you want to cherish it, but then it molds and spoils, that there's a longing for it, there's a searching for it. You might even think, this, I finally found this thing that's going to quench my thirst. 
but then it makes you more thirsty, then it might be a problem. Here I'm thinking of, um, has anyone ever bought like the stack of water bottles at Costco? There's something in the water bottles at Costco that you'll finish like three bottles and you are more thirsty than, if, than before you drank the bottle. I don't know what mineral they're putting in it, but literally I'm like, like I'm going to blow up inside with this like feeling that you have to keep doing it. Or like if you eat the like late night bowl of breakfast cereal, for some reason you finish the breakfast cereal and you're more hungry. Has anyone ever had that? You're like, I just need 10 more bottles of, or, or bowls of breakfast cereal. I guess that's what it takes to be fulfilled. There's things in life that are like that, that all, the only feeling that you get after you have them is I must chase after something greater than that. Well, it just reminds me of this quote that, that um, if God were really wicked, he would give us everything that we long for and then we would truly realize that we are miserable. Or C.S. Lewis, something very similar. He says, this is a long quote, but I'd like to read you the whole thing. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longing which arises in us when we first fall in love or first think of a foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And he says, I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learning careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may be excellent but something has evaded us. So there's something that evades us in having all of the different things. Like when you're really busy and feeling sad, there is an instant hope that comes to your mind when you think, I could go on vacation. Or a perfect spouse. And, and yet there's something that evades us. Uh, as a, just another example, you know, we got C.S. Lewis, we got Horace. Uh, they're all sort of agreeing and now I'd like to mention to you Jerry Seinfeld. And if all of those people agree with Jesus, you know it's true, you know. But Jerry Seinfeld, and I'll butcher it, of course, because you can't do someone else's jokes like this. But Jerry Seinfeld had this bit that, that for years made me laugh where he would say, um, being alone with your internet at home is just like boring and you're always just searching for stuff. But then you find that you can shop for stuff. And you look on the website and you look for shoes and you look for jeans and you look for all kinds of stuff. And then you, you order it. And then, of course, you're not happy yet because you just ordered it. And he says, and of course, you get to the store and you get the shoes, you put them on, you go, these make me look weird. And so you're never as happy as you think the shoes are, you know, because Jerry Seinfeld's always wearing sneakers. And he goes, you, you, never, you never look as good as you think. It never makes you feel as comfortable as you think. And so having the shoes doesn't make you happy. Ordering the shoes doesn't make you happy. The best time in your life is the drive over to get the shoes. <laughs> That's the only time where you're thinking, it's going to be cool, it's going to be great, I'm going to have this thing. That's the only time in your life where you're ever content and happy. Okay, I have successfully butchered all of, this, uh, all, all of the joke. You can Google it. So if all those people uh, agree, we're finding something that we are hard to please. And C.S. Lewis, later in Mere Christianity, where I pulled this quote from, he does make the point that if you have a longing that is greater than the world can satisfy... If you have a thirst that's greater than the world can quench, then maybe it's a signifier 
that you are meant for something greater than this world. And that's not a slam dunk argument for you following Jesus, but it should answer some of this question that we were talking about earlier, which is why should I care about whether this Jesus thing is true or not? And why should I think about following Jesus? Like, why should I want this to be true? And it's that it it doesn't prove that Christianity is true, and yet it compels any thinking person to say, if I have a longing and a hope and a meaning that's greater than anything logically can prove in this world, then maybe it means I should look further beyond. And to use this metaphor, maybe I should put the bucket down a little bit deeper and to search for something that I can pull up and, and give me satisfaction. Let's move forward in our passage and see what this woman finds. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And I already mentioned to you that this is a woman, young woman, uh, you know, what's dignified in the culture is to not just speak to any kind of woman, but also she's a Samaritan. The Samaritans were the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and in short, they had blended some different pagan cultures and some incorrect theology to create an alternate temple and an alternate means of worship. And so if you were in Jerusalem with the temple and you were an observant Jew, you would have a problem with Samaritans because they're like feuding brothers. Like, like um, you know how you don't get mad at someone being a different religion, but sometimes when you're a Christian trying to live out a biblical faith, but there's someone who's just like sort of a distorted version of Christianity, but they claim to be Christian, you sort of get more prickly about that, about differences in theology amongst Christians. You go, no, you're, you're not right. You got to read your Bible correctly. But if you met just someone who was a total like stone-cold atheist, you wouldn't get frustrated about that. And there's something about how when your beliefs are just a little bit different, you can kind of get feuding because you're saying, no, you're distorting the truth from God's word. And that, that's why there was a problem and not just a, a, a peaceful separation between these two religious groups. And so Jews would have a problem with Samaritans because, uh, Samaritans because they're claiming to have the true temple and the true worship and the true way to God. And yet if you're a Jew, they don't. So that's the whole issue with the Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So here he doesn't say he's living water. Later in the book, he says he's the water of life or he's the the living water uh, in um, chapter six and seven. We see those more I am statements, but he's, he's teasing it here in the unfolding of the gospel of John, especially He's saying, I would have given you living water. Now, her response is much more literal. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. How can you get living water? And here's the important part in verse 13. Jesus answers, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Costco water. Verse 14. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We'll talk more about that to close our sermon. Verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. Of course, she wants Jesus to meet her immediate needs. I don't want to have to come to this well in the middle of the day and avoid these people that I'm embarrassed to be around. And so he's uh, He's providing, clearly, he's he's starting to cue her into the fact that he's got a deeper thing going here. 
So I found this series of Oxford lectures or Lexford, lectures at Oxford University where they were talking within a, a Christian environment about ways that people deal with their dissatisfaction when they have tried to find satisfaction in something that doesn't please them, something that this world cannot offer. And I'd like to just mention them to you uh, in an uh, effort to help you process your own feelings of discontentment in your life. Sometimes people will have a naive approach. The first one is a naive approach towards finding satisfaction. That is to think that the next thing will give me that satisfaction. I don't have it now. I'm not happy. I'm not content. I'm not feeling like a whole person. But the next thing, if I get older, if I finally do something else in my life, then there will just be a future time. It's almost like a naivete to say, next decade will find it. The next phase of life, I'll find it. It's a naive approach. The other one is an angry approach. This um, speaker was just mentioning that there are some people who, in their psychological processing of their feelings, um, end up being very bitter and angry, realizing that they don't have satisfaction in this life, and then blaming others for their unhappiness. Even if it's legitimate problems, even if you've legitimately been hurt by family stuff or a business dealing that made you owe a lot of money and sort of ruined your um, career uh, prospects or you're out of money because someone has wronged you, they still looked at the way people process these feelings and said, there's a kind of person that gets very bitter and says, I would be content if it weren't for you. They also pointed to the fact that a lot of political activism can be tied to this kind of psychological uh, processing of your feelings by saying, if it weren't for that party, if it weren't for those policies, and if it weren't for those people who vote that way, then I would personally be happy. And it leads to a lot of not just political activism, but like political resentments and the kind of activists that become sort of a vigilante in their own personal dealings. But it can be tied back to this sense of a lack of satisfaction. It's the angry approach. The third strategy is the driven strategy, which is I haven't found contentment yet, but I will find it. I'm going to change spouses and houses jobs or hobbies, and I will go through that process long enough till I one day arrive at feeling satisfied. Or my fear for many of us, if we're not the driven strategy, is the despair strategy. And that can take a few shapes, but you might blame yourself. You might say, I'm just not a happy person. Like, I'll just never be happy. I'll never arrive at a place where I'm capable of anything but despair. So you might blame yourself, or you might say, um, no one is ever content and have a cynical approach. You meet happy people and you say they're lying. Everyone is as unhappy as I am. And that can lead you to a kind of self-righteousness and a kind of uh, paternalism and a kind of superiority over other people where you say, because I'm so unhappy and I know you're actually unhappy, I know you better than you know yourself. And you'll see people acting like happy Christians or happy people in other areas of life. And you say, no, that's just, it's, what you're actually doing is hiding yourself. And one day you'll wake up to be as honest as I am and you'll be as miserable as I feel. So it's not just a despair. It's a kind of paternalistic superiority and self-righteous kind of despair that comes in because you almost give up on happiness. But then you say, no one can have it. And then the last one is that you pick a source of water, you drop the bucket down deep, into the wrong well, or what I would argue is the wrong well, and you pull up something that is good, but will just not satisfy, but then it takes a whole season of your life to find it out. 
And I mentioned this even last week, but it's been on my mind that uh, altruism and helping other people can, for many people, seem like the right well. Like you're saying, I'm, I'm done being selfish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally live a life where I'm like good to other people. I'm just happy because I, I help other people. But what you notice, let's say, for instance, if you really enter in with the poor and with major social causes that are hard to fix, you'll get a kind of charity fatigue. Now, of course, altruism is good. Helping other people, good. I'm just trying to say it can be a trap if you're trying to get satisfaction from helping other people. One, because you're using the poor. And they will find out. And, and if you're helping the homeless, the poor, the, uh, the abused, they can tell when you're giving to them because you're trying to get some sort of meaning from them. It's evident. They've received food. They've received counsel from all sorts of people like you who are trying to say, I want to be a kind of good person and I'm going to help you so that I can finally feel good about myself or feel good about the life that I live. But also, that kind of charity fatigue will make you, when, the, when you don't get that from people that you're helping, that kind of charity fatigue will make you very resentful and angry at people who won't receive your help or don't listen to your advice and don't give you back the thing that you're trying to get. So even something as good as altruism can be a false or a dirty well, so to speak, that doesn't give you the meaning that we're looking for. Those are the different approaches to finding water that will give you lasting quenching, uh, a quenching of your thirst. So the, the first half of this sermon has been very depressing. Uh, we're all sad. We're all miserable. We're all lonely. We, need, we have a hole in our heart that only God can fix. And I'd like to sort of turn a corner here and close by talking about where Jesus says we can find our satisfaction. So she, the, the Samaritan woman, is looking for it. She's willing to admit now that she has a problem in her life that she needs Jesus to, um, to help. And then she talks about her worship with the temple. It's very confronting to have a polite conversation with Jesus because he knows way too much about you. Like it's hard to have a superficial small talk conversation because he's always cutting to the chase. Like uh, he doesn't want the gospel writer of John to have to write too long. So he's like, this story needs to get moving. So she's like, oh, I got a well, I need water. And he's like, where's your husband? And it turns quite a corner here in verse 16. He says, okay, great, go call your husband and come back. And she says in verse 17, I have no husband. Which, that's not a lie. She doesn't have a husband. And in the ancient culture of the time, uh, there are very few reasons to be a woman that's getting older but not have a husband. The only culturally acceptable time in that more conservative society um, would be that you're a widower, but... She's not a widower, but she is speaking the truth. I have no husband. She's got something deeper here that she's clearly trying to avoid. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. The man you are now with is not your husband. And what you, and what you have just said is quite true. So Jesus calls out the problem with her satisfaction. We find that we all have this thing in us that we might be prone to hiding, that we look for satisfaction in and it's causing problems, um, that, that, um, that God is allowing us to continue to look into these places where we're not finding satisfaction, like that cruel joke thing I was mentioning earlier. And so Jesus now finds it. It's like, ding, 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 this is my issue. My issue is men. My issue is relationships. My issue is 
is abandonment, hurt, conflict resolution. We don't know everything that's going on with her life, but we're finding that that's the sticking point. That's the well that she's been drawing up for years. That's the thirst that she's been trying to quench, or the thing that she's been using to quench her thirst. And so now she wants to avoid it and move it into a theological dialogue instead of her personal issues. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Remember, in the Gospel of John, the word time, the word hour, always Jesus referring to his own death. Let me read this verse again now. Believe me, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, an hour is coming, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. We have to unpack a bit of what we think Jesus is saying here. But what I find very interesting is that he's saying it's spirit and truth. What is the meaning of these words uh, in Jesus' intent here? But I find very interesting that Jesus does correct her theology. He says, you're a Samaritan. And the Samaritan conception about the temple and worship and and how you integrate God with um, other things with the scriptures, you're wrong. Like your theology is off. And so he corrects that, but then he goes deeper into this other issue of if you want to know God, you need to know two things. One, an hour is coming where you won't even worship at the temple. Because as we find out as the story unfolds, he is the true temple. He is the only place that you can go to be connected to God. His sacrifice on the cross is the true sacrifice that you would make in the temple to make atonement for sin. And he's saying, you don't know this yet, but there's something really huge happening here where the hour will come where you will be able to connect with God. And if you're going to connect with God, it needs to be in spirit and truth. And these might be somewhat insufficient synonyms and other words for spirit and truth, But in our search for satisfaction, we need to see her seeking and her finding. Her searching for satisfaction in some things, men. Um, Her searching for God in the temple in Samaritans, though insufficiently in terms of the way she's reaching out to God. She's reaching out to God, but she's doing it with, with some faulty, unbiblical theology. And yet she's seeking. And Jesus is saying, what you need to do is find. And in our culture today, and and, uh, we talk about the culture so much at this church, so, you know, we're all experts on late modernism or whatever the heck we're going through right now, but, like, it's entirely possible, uh, uh, popular in our world today to seek God. Like, everyone can let a thousand seeking flowers bloom. You can say, I try and seek God in this way, I try and seek this different God. It's very popular to seek God. It's becoming more and more unpopular to say, I have found something. I found something that changes. I found something that is... um, like capital T true, like, a, like authoritative. And we started this sermon by saying, some people are asking, why should I care about Jesus? Some people are asking, is it true? But in the end, we, we have to arrive at this place where we, we hear Jesus say, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
we have to say, I found something, and it's, it's him. I guess what I'm trying to say is, when you're talking about whether it's true and whether I should care, there's not one slam dunk argument that proves Christianity true. Like, um, people will ask that often of me, maybe because I'm a pastor or whatever, but they might ask you in, in your workspace or in your family as well. They'll say, prove to me that Christianity is true, and then I'll give it a shot. But um, nobody follows any beliefs that way. Like, in the end, prove to me that you're not just a, a, a person floating in goo in a world where robots have taken over and are convincing you that you're in a simulation so that they can take your energy and then you're just living in a program. This is the plot of the Matrix, of course. Like, prove to me that you're not Neo being plugged into the machine and just living in a simulation. Well, you say, well, I, I don't think I am. Okay, well, that's fine. That's like a probabilistic argument. And, and yet, none of us live our lives as though we're just floating in a vat of goo being controlled by robots. All of us have to live real lives. And so when you come to Jesus and say, prove to me that all of it's true, answer all of my questions and kind of all of my complaints, then I'll give Jesus a chance. Nobody lives life that way. You have to even, if you're going to be thinking about this, you have to level the playing, in, playing field and say, all of us come to our beliefs because of a mix of logic and longing and probabilities. Everyone has arrived at that. You can't prove God's non-existence with an airtight argument, and you can't prove the truth of Jesus with an airtight argument. You can point to all sorts of things that are logically credible. This trustworthiness of scripture from textual criticism, from history, from, from all sorts of stuff. Like you can support a lot of what Christianity is true, but there's no way that the logical support will get you all the way to following Jesus. And then of course, certainly it will not change your heart to want to follow Jesus. So whatever theological argument this woman is having here, Jesus sort of corrects her, but then he's saying, we're going to worship God in spirit. Like, you're going to reach out to God in spirit and say, God, I want you. I'm, I'm, I'm miserable, or I have this area of my life that I'm just really in pain in regards to. There's going to be a time where you're going to reach out to God in spirit, and that there will be a truth that you can hold on to and say, this thing brings me satisfaction. And I want to close with this. This is the witness that we get from Jesus, from her, and I'd like to close with some application on how we can hold on to that truth. We can seek God, find him in Jesus, and then have a satisfaction that changes our lives that we can hold on to. So lastly, her witness. Jesus, verse 25, the woman said, I know that, I know that the Messiah called the Christ um, I can pause here. The Messiah is the Hebrew word for the promised person to, to save the world. The Christ is just the Greek word for that. Christos is just the Greek word for that Hebrew word. I know that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. You'd think Jesus would be like, didn't I just kind of explain a lot to you? <laughs> like, he's like, come on, lady, get with the program. And then Jesus declares, I am, the one speaking to you, I am he. And then moving on in the passage, just then his disciples returned. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this man be the Messiah? I am he. Jesus is saying, I'm 
the one you can hold on to. And so whereas Christianity does not have a watertight argument that you can just say premise one, premise two, premise three, therefore love God, we do have a watertight person. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a theology teacher. You can't just come to me and say, I want spiritual fulfillment. Can I get that from you? He's saying, if you want this, if you want the implications of knowing me, if you want to know God, to reach out in spirit and find truth, you have to come to me. Later in the gospel, he says it differently. He says, I am the living water. He's not saying, I give living water. He's saying, I am the water. You have to come to me. He's saying, I am the bread of life. And back in the ancient world, you know, like um, not everyone ate meat all the time. Uh, they didn't eat, stay, you have to be very wealthy to regularly eat meat at all. And so the center of the meal in the ancient world was bread. And he's saying, if you want to feel full, if you want to tr feel truly uh, like, if you want to take something into your life that will allow you to have the energy, the motivation, the power to go out into life, it's not that I give that to you, it's that that's me. We have to go to Jesus. What that means is we can't go to Jesus and say, help me feel more spiritual. Help me to have this kind of power because then we're just using Jesus for what he offers us. He's saying, you, you have to have me. And I think that's good because that means you either have him or you don't. You either reject him or you receive him. It also gives us something to hold on to. And I'm mixing metaphors here, so pardon me, but like I think of holding on to something like, like holding on to a cross, like a reminder of gospel truths that when you're feeling unsatisfied, you can, you can look to, you can hold on to it and say, this is true of me. This is true of my future and my worth and my life and my salvation that's offered to me in Jesus. And, and I, I like the idea of being able to hold on to the gospel promises, the gospel truths, and, and, uh, and look at them and think about them and meditate on them as a Christian, because in your moments of feeling unsatisfied, you now know that it's out of our unbelief, even as Christians, that we're not holding on to those truths. And so our discontentment as Christians, our lack of satisfaction as Christians oftentimes comes because we're not accessing what is true of us in Jesus. Uh, Augustine made, as much as I but will butcher uh, um, paraphrasing Jerry Seinfeld. I will now butcher uh, Augustine. But Augustine said that our discontentment comes in life because of our disordered loves, that we just love things too much. We try and make money something that it can't be, and relationships something it can't be, and personal success something that it can't be. And what you have to do is take what is true of Jesus and just take it to the top of the list. Reorder your love so that we go to Jesus as he's presenting himself, the I am. And when you order your loves in life correctly, now that when the thing that you love and worship and adore and are, are um, like uh, find beautiful, when it is something that is immutable, perfect and powerful, but also reachable and loves you and knows you, and you, you see Jesus through John where he says, I'm not just your Lord, but I'm your friend. Like when you love this immutable thing, this perfect thing, Always all-knowing, he knows everything that I ever did, but loving. And, and not just knowing and loving, but in your misery at noontime at a well, he comes to you in the midst of that misery. 
and interacts with you in it and knows you deeply, can call out your stuff, go get your husband, but then loves you, speaks to you, interacts with you. And when that kind of Jesus is the thing that you worship the most and that you look to the most and and are delighted in the most, that's how as a Christian you can say, I'm not let down by Jesus. He doesn't fall short. He's, He's perfect. And then when you think about the fact that that kind of Jesus, not a watertight argument, but a watertight Savior, the relationship you have with him is every single day. And because the salvation brought to you is passive and not earned, therefore now you can't lose him. And that because he's the returning Lord, now you will always have him. That's a satisfaction that nothing else can provide you in life. And sure, there's all kinds of wonderful people who don't believe in God. There's wonderful people who find fulfillment in other things. I'm just saying, compare them. Compare just being a good person with the Savior that the Gospels gives us. Just compare them. And I think that gives you a chance at having something more meaningful than just living a a good life or just having a great family or just being an altruistic person. It's a well that doesn't run dry. He's the watertight person. And the good news of the gospel in, you, in our passage here, Jesus says, indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The message that Jesus is saying is, if you have me, it's not that you have to go dip down for it anymore, but that it's overflowing, welling up. Now it's a spring that pushes up to you that you can just have And you can just splash it into your face. And you can drink it like this and it won't run dry because it's just constantly coming. That's the change of metaphor that Jesus does in the passage that's very powerful. But the the thing that's powerful to me is that it goes from an active seeking God and I finally found him because I'm a good religious person to saying when you know Jesus, the recipients uh, or receiving that salvation is a passive effort. It's coming to you now. And I've run a little bit long, but um, you can put up with it. <laughs> so, like, uh, I got one more minute. When I was in state college religion class, um, I, you study all the world religions, and it's through, like, a secular college perspective. And I really gained a lot from that. Like, I, I went to Christian college later, but I, I had most of, my, all, most all of my undergrad in this, like, uh, state college um, thing. And I guess that makes me just very sympathetic to people who sort of think, all religions are basically good, and... And most people, you know, don't know much about God and seek God, but who can really find him? And I remember watching a video uh, in conjunction with a book I was reading by a famous atheist, Bart Ehrman, who went to a very conservative Christian college, uh, Wheaton College, in the, that part of the country that's too cold to go to, like Chicago area or whatever, and, uh, Wheaton College. And uh, so he wrote this book. He's a scholar. He's an ex-Christian. He writes a scholar about how Christianity is in- incomprehensible and shouldn't be believed. And everyone loves it because like his testimony is, I was a conservative Bible-believing Christian. And then I woke up to how untrue everything is. And I, I watched a video uh, in conjunction with that book that said, uh, it had a testimony of a woman. And she had a rough past as a conservative Christian as well. And then she became Muslim, and it tracked her process of living as a a white, suburban woman who um, dresses and worships like a Muslim person, and then she goes on her her pilgrimage to Mecca. And she goes to the 
different sites around Mecca, as you do in the five pillars of Islam as a main active participant in being saved, so to speak, in the Muslim religion. And she stares off in the sunset. And this is the only thing critical about the video that, I, that stuck out to me. She stares off in the sunset and she says, Allah, thank you for coming after me. And of course, in a class with mostly non-Christians at a state college, I'm not like, no, man, that's not true. Forget that lady. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't messed up at all. But uh, it did stick out to me. Girl, you can't say that. You went to Mecca. You had to travel to God. You had to achieve the five pillars. Girl, you borrowed that from Jesus. You can't sit in the desert and say, God, thank you for coming after me when you're alone on a pilgrimage. And yet the woman at the well absolutely has good reason to say that. I was alone. I was rejected by my culture. There's patriarchal beliefs where I can't even talk to a man. I'm a Samaritan, so I can't even talk to Jews to even get some, some theological improvement. And then Jesus is like bending around the corner, making eye contact with the woman, slowly walking up to the well. She's turning away her face as is polite culture at the time. And he says, hey, can I have a drink? And like the rest is her witness of going out into the village and saying, I've got a testimony. I sought God and I think I even found him in, in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's seek him together and let's hold on to this savior that we have that can satisfy our hearts. Let's pray.